From EAB, I'm Matt Pellish, and this is Office Hours, a weekly podcast covering all things higher education. When looking for information about COVID-19, the impacts the pandemic has had, we've relied very heavily on government officials, on the CDC, the WHO, the news media, others, which of course is, is not a bad thing. But there's also a lot of great minds within higher ed providing some useful insights. On today's episode, my friend Sally Amoroso is back to talk with one such expert. Dr. Jeffrey Gold is Chancellor of the University of Nebraska at Omaha, as well as a physician and Chancellor of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. As a leading expert on containing the spread of viruses, on pathogens, he'll share some insights from the Higher Education COVID-19 Pandemic Recovery Guide that his team released this past spring, as well as a little of what we've learned since the pandemic began, and some smarter ways we can use data to make decisions about when, how we're going to bring folks back to campus. Thanks for listening, and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Hi, this is Sally Amoruso. I am Chief Partner Officer with EAB, and I'm here today with Dr. Jeffrey Gold, um, who holds a dual chancellorship over both the University of Nebraska Medical Center and the University of Nebraska Omaha. Um, Dr. Gold, we are thrilled to have you here today. Thanks, Sally. It's a great pleasure to join you. Um, perhaps you could start by telling us a little bit about your journey to those uh, dual chancellorships. Sure. Well, uh, I like to refer to myself as I'm a nearly recovered cardiac surgeon, I'm a product <laughs> of uh, cardiac surgery training uh, in the Harvard system uh, at the Brigham and practiced uh, both adult and mostly pediatric cardiac surgery for 25 years on the East Coast in the New York City area, and then had the opportunity to uh, become a medical school dean, uh, university provost, university chancellor, and then uh, about six and a half years ago, was invited to become the chancellor of the University of Nebraska Medical Center. And at the same time, uh, to serve as the chair of the board of Nebraska Medicine, which is our healthcare delivery mm -hmm. system here. Right. It's a large academic med center. And then about three years ago, a little more than three years ago, I was asked to assume the role at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, which is our undergraduate and graduate uh, public uh, campus of the University of Nebraska system. So uh, while I say uh, I'm not a Nebraskan by birth, I am definitely a Nebraskan by choice. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And that really gives you such a unique vantage on some of the events unfolding with the coronavirus. Um, and that's actually how we um, came to talk with you because you have produced um, from this institution a really remarkable reopening guide for higher education and, and for others, quite frankly. Um, but there are reasons why those two institutions came together and why you were um, really in a position to provide that guidance. Can you talk a little bit about the Global Center for Health Security and some of the other involvement that you've had that have really positioned you to be a leader in thinking through these issues? Yeah, well, the story goes back a lot earlier than my tenure here. It actually goes back almost 20 years uh, when uh, under the leadership of Dr. Phil Smith, who at that time was the uh, division chief of infectious diseases uh, here mm -hmm. at UNMC, that Phil had the wisdom and the vision to create a biocontainment unit. You know, this was uh, immediately post 9-11 uh, when, you know, letters with white powder in them were being circulated and anthrax yes. spores were the name of the game. Right. Uh, SARS, the original SARS outbreak occurred shortly thereafter. 
And so because of that and because of our proximity to uh, United States Strategic Command, uh, the decision was made to build a 10-bed biocontainment unit here, which had multiple uh, major advantages to it as a dedicated unit. But one of the most important was uh, Dr. Smith's vision that you not only needed to build a facility, but that you needed to have effective ongoing training of a team. And so between 40 and 50 individuals went through quarterly exercises in donning and doffing, uh, personal protective equipment, et cetera. But this became a reality for us shortly after I actually joined the group in 2014, if we dial back our memory clocks a little bit, uh, that was when Ebola was raging in Western oh, yes. Africa. That's and true. there were a number, unfortunately, of American citizens, mostly physicians, who were volunteering in various parts of Western Africa who themselves became infected, who were repatriated back to the United States for care. And I uh, will never forget that fateful day in late August uh, when, uh, when we were uh, asked by the Department of State uh, to repatriate the first American citizen back to our campus. Uh, well known, it was Dr. Richard Sacra, who was a right. Massachusetts physician. Yes. And uh, we had the opportunity to activate this extremely well-trained team. And, uh, and so not only were there several patients who were repatriated, who were with confirmed infections, there were a number of quarantines and isolations, and, and that got into a whole area of training. And so that really formed the, uh, the next level of energy around what we, what we currently call the GCHS, or the Global Center for Health Security. So the Global Center for Health Security uh, is a University of Nebraska Board of Regents Center of Excellence that focuses on all things from education and training to research to clinical care and engagement widely across the entire uh, all-hazard spectrum. So right now, of course, we're very heavily focused on COVID-19, and I'll talk a little bit about that in a second, I'm sure. Yes. But everything from radiation and nuclear exposure to chemical exposure to trauma, uh, you know, all hazard, what, what is currently referred to in the vernacular as the 21st century threats. Uh, right. So, I mean, just to put this into a little different context, there are over 28,000 American military in South Korea right now. If there was a chemical or a nuclear exposure, either accidental or non-accidental, what are we going to do with those people? How are they going to be cared for? Where? Uh, who's going to provide the care? What's the supply chain to manage that? And who's going to do the training? So as a result of that, the Global Center for Health Security for years now has been training the, the NDMS, has been training the Public Health uh, Corps uh, in multiple areas of personal protective equipment and what we call special pathogen response, which are these highly infectious agents. So fast forward to January of uh, you know, this year, 2020, when we were starting to see these uh, cases erupt in central China, in Wuhan City, uh, right. it became very clear that American citizens needed to be repatriated back to the United States. So we were called very early on uh, by ASPR. And of <laughs> yes. course, as is always the case, we say yes. By the way, tell us what the question is. <laughs> and so uh, we did. And in partnership uh, with the governor uh, and in partnership uh, with the National Guard, we repatriated a large group of American citizens uh, back to Nebraska. They were quarantined here. Fortunately, none of them became ill. And then they all went home to their states. 
And then shortly after that, we were asked to send a team to the Diamond Princess, which at that time was moored in Yokohama, Japan, yes. with a good number of American citizens on board. Uh, and we actually repatriated all of the infected American citizens back to our campus. Uh, and they were quarantined, uh, isolated, and unfortunately, some of them were actually admitted to the hospital because they were so ill. And every one of them went home uh, in good condition and are all now, of course, Nebraska football fans, and they will be forever. Uh, but uh, so, uh, and that was in uh, early February. So we've been involved in just endless requests by the federal partners, by state and local for training, education. And as you say, uh, one of the things we've done early on was we were asked to visit some uh, local meatpacking facilities that had a large number of COVID cases. And as a result of that, uh, pushed out a guide for the meatpacking industry. And, you know, I guess the question was, if you could do meatpacking, why can't you do K-12? And if you can do K-12, why can't you do higher ed? And if you can do higher ed, where's the guide for early childhood, the court system? And it just went on and on and on. So now we have pushed out several guides, but I think of all of them, you know, meatpacking is probably the most popular one that's downloaded. Uh, long-term care and, uh, and senior citizen guides have been developed uh, as well. And just to, you know, give you a little bit more spectrum, uh, our research scientists uh, study virus transmission and we've had several key publications on the way that COVID is transmitted. Uh, we were actually actively involved in the recent uh, letter that you may have read about that went to the World Health Organization asking them to reconsider the modality of spread. Yes. We can talk about that a little later if you uh, yes, we will. If you wish. But also we've worked very closely with the CDC, not only on guidelines, but actually worked very hard with them early on to look at the accuracy of some of the testing. We do test validation for both antibody tests and for PCR tests, antigen tests. We're currently developing a number of new point of service tests in our own laboratories so that uh, you could have almost instantaneous answers regarding immunity, participate in vaccine trials. Uh, we're the, one of the main partners, principal investigators in the remdesivir trials that you may have read about. Yes. So uh, this is uh, you know, an organization that has really leaned in on the basic science and applied research side, the education and training side, and of course on the clinical side as a you know, a major regional referral center for, uh, unfortunately, patients that need hospitalization and critical care. So a pretty, you you know, a 20-year story that has culminated in being at the right place at the right time uh, to be helpful. And by the way, uh, as a result of that, there's been quite a bit of media attention. Uh, I was just looking at some of the numbers, and we've just exceeded $3 billion of earned media uh, uh, as a result of... uh, of the, of the subject content experts and our team, you know, not including me, of course, who really know what they're talking about and who are just the, constantly being sought after uh, for interviews and such. Well, you know, when you think about that 20 year context and history, um, you have made the comment that we really shouldn't have been quite as surprised by this situation, which has really caught the entire country um, and had us on our heels. Um, and you've also talked about how we need to be expecting future incidents. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Because we really are on our heels in, in managing um, 
this crisis? Well, a lot of work has been historically done, you know, not involving me, of course. As I say, uh, you know, uh, I've learned more about viruses uh, in the last six years of my life than I ever thought sure. as, a, uh, as a surgical clinician. You know, talk to me about children's heart disease. You know, <laughs> I might know something, uh, but the rest of this was certainly out of my zip code, as uh, I'm fond of saying. But, uh, you know, there's just been ever since, uh, certainly since uh, 1911, you know, and the great uh, flu pandemic, uh, there's been a lot of concern, uh, be it around SARS, be it around Ebola, and most recently, you know, H1N1, uh, yes. that uh, these are, were relatively contained, but, you know, and, and did reach pandemic status, many of these things, but not at a level that we're looking at now. And yet, in spite of that, uh, the Centers for Disease Control, the White House pandemic planning teams, uh, yes. I mean, there have been many, many federal exercises. There have been many colleges of public health and schools of public health uh, that have been e extremely focused on not only preparedness, but on mitigation and response strategies. You know, people talk about, for instance, how we're going to roll the vaccine trials out, who's going to be prioritized. Well, you know, I don't know what they're, what's going to be recommended by our federal partners at this time. I know there's a lot of work being done about that, and I'm hoping that it's being centralized and being coordinated. But there is a playbook <clears throat> that has been developed that came out of H1N1 that said, when you get the vaccine, this is what you do. Right. And, you know, and a lot of really bright people, far smarter than I am, put all this together uh, and, uh, and it became a playbook. But the long and the short of it is uh, these, uh, you know, zoonotic viruses, so-called sloppy replicating RNA zoonotic viruses that start in bat caves and, you know, other places. And, you know, whether it's Ebola or whether it's SARS or H1N1, I mean, these are, you know, devastating diseases. You know, uh, uh, all I can tell you is when we were activated in, uh, you know, 2014 for Ebola, Ebola is a surface contact transmitted virus. So it's transmitted through bodily secretions. Yes. It's not aerosolized and it's not a respiratory infection. So it's not spread by droplets. But, you know, it's got a fatality rate, you know, 75 to 90%, depending upon how early it's treated. Fortunately, there are vaccines available for it now. And by the way, Global Center is monitoring another recent outbreak in the Congo. And, you know, with uh, air transportation and, and travel around the world, I mean, these viruses are in our cities, you know, in hours. Uh, right. And, you know, we see what's happened here. You know, uh, you started off with a handful of cases in uh, Wuhan City in the, you know, uh, Hunan province of China. And how long is it before it's in Seattle and New York and in San Francisco? Uh, and then because of how mobile our population is, you know, you sit in an airplane with 200 other people and, you know, and all of that, by the way, happened with Ebola, but it was extremely well contained uh, after the events that happened, uh, you know, in, uh, in Dallas uh, uh, with the hospital spread there. We, uh, you know, there was a lot of preparedness, but there's also, uh, you know, there was a, a for a very long period of time that this was deemed to be someone else's problem, that this was a Chinese problem that was going to be contained in China. Right. You know, when we effectively closed our borders to Chinese uh, flights and things of that nature, which was done the last week of January, 
there were 71,000 confirmed cases in Wuhan city, and there were 15 in the United States, one five. So the theory was, keep it there and we'll be fine. And uh, I guess history didn't quite work out that way. And um, so as we look forward, it sounds like we should be expecting um, more of these kinds of situations to arise, just given the way that we travel and, and sort of the global nature uh, of the economy and the way that these spread. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think so, Sally. I, I also think that there are going to be a lot of lessons learned from this event, right. and hopefully it won't become the flavor of the month. Obviously, the federal government has put trillions of dollars of resources uh, into this because the economic impact of this pandemic and, of course, the sociologic, educational, spiritual deprivation, all of those things have had a, you know, an incredible effect. And by the way, uh, I'm not sure whether we're in the seventh inning, the fifth inning, or the second inning of this ballgame. And while it's, you know, intellectually pleasant for me to talk about, you know, lessons learned and moving on, uh, you know, we are not only focused on the long-term future here uh, at the Global Center, and I spend a lot of my time in Washington Beltway uh, talking specifically about that and have been for years uh, in building national preparedness, but we've got to get through this. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you're well aware, the numbers uh, that are being seen across the United States recently exceeding 60,000 confirmed cases a day Yes. with a public health, you know, the general rule of thumb is for every test that's positive, there are 10 other people that aren't being tested. So that means there may be 600,000 people, uh, you know, and we're at the, you know, millions and millions of confirmed cases. And, uh, you know, you put the total number of deaths into perspective. Uh, during the entire totality of the Second World War, just over 400,000 Americans lost their lives. We could be at that number before Thanksgiving in this country. It's, uh, devastating. Um, you mentioned uh, just a moment ago our uh, evolving understanding of the modality of spread and, and quite frankly that we are continuing to learn about this virus as we go along, not just about the spread, but about other perhaps more uh, long lasting issues as well. Can you, can you touch on that a bit, Dr. Gold? Sure. Well, uh, you know, respiratory viruses uh, of, of this nature uh, are typically spread by uh, droplets and uh, so, I mean, the public health people have instructed me that, uh, and this goes back to my medical school days, which is, of course, when the dinosaurs roamed the earth, <laughs> but, uh, uh, as my children like to remind me and my grandchildren. But uh, uh, the, the, the story is that uh, these infectious diseases are spread in, in ways that are characterized as uh, airborne or aerosolized spread, yes. uh, meaning they linger in the air, droplet spread, meaning they're projected when people cough and sneeze in these tiny little droplets that are projected. Uh, and then there's what's called surface spread, uh, fomite and, and vector spread. So for instance, malaria spread by mosquitoes, that's right. considered a vector spread uh, disease. So for a very long time, uh, the concepts around COVID-19 were that the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is as it's called technically, uh, is spread by droplets, meaning that when you cough or when you sneeze uh, and, and gets into the air within a six foot radius, and the reason six feet is chosen is that is about the average of how far you can project a droplet. Uh, 
if you project it onto a surface like a countertop or a doorknob and somebody else comes up against that countertop or doorknob with their hand and then touches their face, that's another way the virus is transmitted, which is why we're asking people to wash their hands, clean surfaces, and, and use protective equipment because you know face masks and face coverings to stop that projection. Well, right. first of all, there's a lot of data you know, that depends on whether you're uh, elderly and frail or whether you're young and healthy, whether you're gonna project those particles, uh, you know, two feet or 12 feet. And there's mm -hmm. all kinds of studies that show that the distance is extremely variable. But there's also data that says that you can recover live virus particles that linger in the air, uh, which raises the question of aerosolized or airborne spread of the virus. Now, whether or not those virus particles that linger in the air can actually infect somebody, that gets down to the question of what the minimal viral load is. So for instance, right. measles virus. Measles is an airborne spread virus. The viruses linger in the air and you can get measles uh, just by breathing in the air of somebody else being in the room, whether they cough or sneeze or, or, or don't. And we've also seen, uh, you know, experiences. There's a really recent case of uh, of a choir practice, where 97 yes. choir members uh, were in the same room uh, rehearsing. One of them had COVID, and 90 of the people in the room, uh, without coughing or sneezing or anything of that nature, just from practicing uh, their vocal arts, uh, contracted uh, the virus. Uh, and there's all kinds of stories like that in churches, in long-term care facilities, uh, uh, et cetera. And so the, uh, the concern is that some of these virus particles that linger in the air, which again, our researchers and several others around the world have confirmed, may be important in uh, understanding the spread of the virus. And of course, as you also mentioned, uh, and, and that has you know, very serious considerations about social distancing, personal protective equipment, use of face masks, uh, et cetera, because uh, we really need to prevent that because the, if, if we can get the virus just from being aerosolized, that's gonna have a lot to do with what we're gonna do in classrooms and teaching laboratories, concerts, athletic events, you know, all of those sorts of things as we open uh, our higher education systems and try to get back to a new normal. Does we this imply, I'm sorry, Dr. Gold, but does this imply that the social distancing is insufficient then if it's aerosolized and it can if, travel much so, further? Again, I want to just underscore the word if, printed yes. in bold italicized letters, if you can get the virus infection from aerosolized and airborne spread, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> then, uh, then it does have implications for social distancing. Right. But the, uh, what I think needs to be done is not just con to confirm the fact that you can recover genetic fragments of virus from the air, but that those fragments are connected to live virus particles, and those live virus particles are in sufficient quantity uh, to be infected. So for instance, we know roughly how many influenza virus particles or how many Ebola virus particles or how many measles virus particles it takes to get infected. We yes. don't know that uh, for COVID-19. And so that's a piece of research uh, that needs to be done. But that's why you, know, you see healthcare workers using N95 respirators, which are more uh, accurate and more thorough in filtering air particles and can trap 
at least the smallest of all droplets. You know, uh, the, our infectious disease colleagues and our public health people like to categorize, you know, droplet spread, surface spread, aerosolized spread, airborne spread, et cetera. I sort of think of this as a continuum. You know, yeah. if there are tiny, tiny, tiny little droplets that contain virus, yes. you know, call it airborne, call it droplet, call it whatever you want. If it lingers in the air and gets right. swept through ventilation systems into other rooms and parts of your building, it acts like it's airborne spread. So it, it just all adds up together to me is that we just need to continue to be careful and watch the science evolve. You were about to go to some of the other uh, evolving aspects of understanding. This yeah, virus. so what I was gonna say is that just as we're learning about spread uh, and we're learning more about the physiology uh, of the virus itself, the genetics, the surface coating, et cetera, and as we're developing vaccines and antivirals and things of that nature, uh, the, uh, we're also learning about the virus itself and, uh, and the yes. type of disease that it causes. And without getting into a lot of detail, you know, we've learned about this Kawasaki-like inflammatory vascular disease. Uh, we're learning about uh, better treatment modalities, for instance, proning patients. Uh, we're learning about how to avoid the use of ventilators. The remdesivir trial demonstrated you could reduce hospitalization. Some of the other clinical trials are actually looking promising as well. And I'm very excited about some of the vaccine development that's ongoing. You know, it was just a recent report of some cardiac and vascular disease that may be prominent and, uh, and we're just gonna have to monitor that and watch the evolution. But the more we learn about this, the better we can be prepared to care for patients and the better we can understand how to prevent the disease. So our higher education um, university and, and college leaders are really thinking about um, so many aspects of information collection to inform their decisions around reopening. And, and one of them is around community spread. And we're currently in this situation where many communities are seeing surges. Mm -hmm. um, can you speak about the PRAM dashboards and, and uh, other ways that you would encourage them to be tracking key data? Uh, so that they can make a more informed decision. Sure. So the, the basic premise of all of the guides, whether it's meatpacking or higher ed or early childhood or, you know, mm -hmm. fill in the blank, is that in order to reopen a business, a school, a meatpacking facility, uh, right. you, know, you, you name the business, that there needs to be local control of the virus and there needs to be uh, adequate access to uh, healthcare, inpatient, outpatient, testing, personal protective equipment, et cetera. And so back in the early days of the pandemic, uh, to be uh, accurate, I think 148 days ago, uh, we developed something called the PRAM index or the PRAM tool. PRAM stands yes. for Pandemic uh, Recovery Acceleration Model, PRAM, sort of like a baby carriage. Uh, and. Uh, and the idea is pretty simple, uh, is, is that it looks at, uh, it's not a predictive model, but it looks at the last 14 days and it tells you what the rate of change is in six key parameters, which are the, uh, the number of cases per day, the percent positive cases per day, and the number of deaths per day per million population in each case. And then it also looks at the number of hospital beds excuse me, the number of intensive care unit beds, and then the number of ventilators. And it looks at the ratio 
of where we are today, actually the last three-day rolling average, versus the previous week. So it essentially calculates what we call the reproduction factor. So the R0 is the reproduction factor for the virus. And that's based on the number of cases per day today uh, versus uh, 14 days ago, which is considered one virus cycle in the case of uh, COVID-19. And so it produces a dashboard. <clears throat> and the dashboard, is, for instance, in the state of Nebraska, is broken down every 24 hours uh, to the six healthcare collaborative geographic districts, which are spaced across the state, and also to the 20 public health, local public health districts. And so we know what's happening in the Nebraska Panhandle is different what's happening in Lincoln Lancaster, which is different than what's happening in, in the Omaha Metro as I sit here today. And so right. we publish this every day. And, the, and there's a little gas gauge that goes with it for each of these areas that is either uh, green, uh, yellow, orange, or red. And guess what? It's probably not great to be in the red on a given day. And so the idea is pretty simple for let's talk higher ed, which is what we're interested in today. Uh, if a campus is going to open, one of the University of Nebraska campuses are, uh, we want to be in the green and we want to be in the green for 14 solid days before we start to restore campus based activities now and the whole idea here is not to give us a projection, but to give us a real time assessment and to know where we are. And so if we were to lose control of either access to healthcare or community spread of the virus as detected through the PRAM early warning system, which is really what it is, yes. uh, is uh, that would be a wake up call to the university campus of, you know, you really need to be extra vigilant or you need to think about closing community events or doing those sorts of things real time. Because they're gonna be fits and starts. And we know that when we come back to campus, students are going to get infected, faculty and staff are going to get infected, because we're not through this for, you know, I would say at least a year until we have deployed widely uh, spread active uh, vaccination programs in place. So we're going to have to learn to live with this. Well, that's right. And I think the dynamic nature of this virus and the way it spreads um, puts a huge burden on university leaders to create optionality around their ability to respond um, and to phase in or phase out different uh, levels of in-person interaction. We, um, we recently did a survey um, of some of our partners and the, the greatest concern that came up from university leaders is the ability to motivate students to comply with social distancing. And part of that I'm sure is because this has been seen as an old person's issue and, and virus. Um, what are your thoughts on that in terms of our ability to um, engage students in behaving in a way that allows us to contain the spread. Are you optimistic? Pessimistic? I am, yeah. You know, uh, our students and their families are, uh, you know, they've been living through this for almost six months now. Uh, they, there's, unless they're living under a rock or, you know, in blatant denial, but uh, it's pretty rare right now, e even here in Nebraska, which has been, you know, I think very well managed for a lot of different reasons, a lot of different levels, uh, that uh, they either know somebody or read about somebody that they know and respect, be it a performer or an actor or actress, uh, <clears throat> politician, you know, somebody who, who they can identify with who either had the disease or actually was hospitalized or heaven forbid right. passed away. I actually have some close friends who lost their lives 
to this disease. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, there's no end to the tragedy and we won't waste this audience's time on that. But the point being is uh, I like to think that our students are mature. And frankly, I am less concerned about what's gonna happen on campus than I am about what's going to happen off campus as we start yes. to as we start to return, and that's where education and counseling and mentorship and uh, leading by example is is going to. Uh, and you know, are there going to be episodes of students that are, or Frank, for that matter, community or staff members that are going to choose to have a different view and and choose to express themselves differently? Sure. But you know, at the end of the day, we, we did a survey of our students on the undergraduate campus at UNO and, uh, and asked them what are the most important factors that they're concerned about in coming back to campus. First of all, they all want to come back to campus, no question. But <clears throat> the single most important thing, believe it or not, is not athletics or even their classroom activities. It's their health and their strong desire, even though they do believe this is a quote, old person's disease, unquote, which of course is not the case. I mean, there are countless, uh, you know, down to the newborn level of, of children who have died from this disease. Yes, right. more common in older people, people with comorbidities, but this is by no means restricted to the older population. Uh, but their single highest priority was to be safe and to keep their families safe. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so as a, as a result of that, uh, our highest priority in planning the return to campus, uh, both at the Med Center here uh, and at UNO, uh, is, uh, is safety. And so we've got, uh, we're, we're planning four different scenarios, everything from what we call the new normal, which is a de-densified classroom, teaching laboratory, you know, on-campus uh, situation. Yes. Uh, and uh, stage four of that uh, would be uh, the just the opposite, totally remote education back to where we were in the spring semester. And we're actually testing those models in summer session. And so, for instance, our aviation program. Yes. It's uh, tough to teach uh, to do experiential <laughs> aviation. Uh, I mean, not that flight simulators aren't great, but, uh, you know, these students uh, aren't here to uh, spend all their time in a flight simulator or reading textbooks. Similarly, our teaching laboratories and some of our graduate chem courses are operational and we're looking at, at that. We're looking at different types of performance practice, uh, you know, for some of our music and acting programs. Right. We've actually done some very interesting things doing Zoom concerts, which are, if you haven't seen them, it. they're just absolutely amazing. I just saw, excuse me, <clears throat> the performance of one of our string quartets uh, uh, and it was just fantastic. So I am, you know, guardedly optimistic that we're going to create a blend of new normal that's going to be monitored constantly. You know, I will point out another thing the guide calls for that we have done is we've appointed a director of health security for each of our campuses. And that's somebody with both a medical and a public health background that can help oversee policy and procedural decisions, etc. So right. at the Med Center, you know, with the breadth and depth of the Global Center, I mean, we've got a ton of that expertise but nobody dedicated to the question of uh, how are we gonna safely bring students and faculty back to campus? Who's gonna monitor it? What are our policies are gonna be? You know, who's gonna order the masks and, you know, and make sure that there's plenty of PPE. And so there's a dedicated person on each of our campuses now uh, to do that. And that's been a, a pretty successful move. 
those people were all appointed uh, in the spring and identified and given that authority. And by the way, they all report uh, directly to me. And so uh, there's absolute line of authority there uh, to me. They sit in on every vice chancellor's meeting. Uh, and so, the, the, you know, obviously we do spend a lot of time talking about all things virus. And it's, either, it's that in the budget right now, of course, uh, add in a, uh, yes. a very healthy dose of uh, racial injustice and social determinants and things of that nature. So it's been quite a tumultuous period of time. Yes. But having that expertise in the area of public health and health security has really been extremely beneficial and I highly recommend it. Anybody that's interested, we actually have the job descriptions uh, that are available for those individuals. So that brings me to my, my last question, Dr. Gold, which is uh, looking forward, whether it's this next year or the next potential uh, threat, whether it's a pandemic or otherwise, what um, advice do you have for university leaders in terms of continuing to invest in their preparedness? Yeah, you know, that's a great question because as I said earlier, I, I spend most of my time focused on what's going to happen tomorrow in the next three months, uh, etc. But we've been working very closely with the federal government, particularly with uh, ASPR, HHS, and DOD, and and Department of, of State and others about long-term preparedness and right. uh, specifically about how we can affect meaningful public-private partnerships between the large academic medical centers of the United States uh, and the federal government and the state and local governments. So we are in Region 7 uh, and the University of Nebraska Medical Center is responsible for all of the multi-state uh, that surround us to coordinate and organize all hazard disaster response. And I'm thinking that it would, if, you know, if nothing else happens here, one, our colleges and universities need to learn lessons, real-time lessons, and codify that from what's going on today. But also I would suggest to develop partnerships with these large yes. multi-state regions <clears throat> so that they become a proactive partner and participant in the decision-making. Because one of the other things that we learned, which was really critical, is that we've got, you know, between UNO and UNMC, well over 20,000 students who, if they're not in class, form a phenomenal volunteer group that can do contact tracing and testing and things yes. of that nature and volunteer in long-term care facilities, soup kitchens and other such things. And uh, we've mobilized that. And if that could be all planned and rehearsed in advance, uh, you know, all the power to them. So, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, so-called future scenario planning. Yes. And as a result of that, so uh, mm -hmm. I like to talk about rehearsing the future. So, mm -hmm. you know, we're rehearsing the future right now. Unfortunately, it's a, what the military would call a live virtual constructive exercise, <laughs> meaning it's here. That's great advice. Thank you so much. I love that. Rehearsing the future. Um, Dr. Gold, thank you for your time today and for your insights and advice. It's a pleasure to be with you. Best wishes. Thanks again for listening. Join us for our next episode, a little bit closer to home for me here in New York, when Sally talks with Adelphi University President Dr. Christine Reardon, who chairs the Commission of Independent Colleges and Universities in New York. She's going to talk about collaboration that's taking place across New York State as schools are preparing for the fall as well as how they're becoming a little bit more involved in the decision-making up in Albany. I'm Matt Pellish for Office Hours with EAB. Mm -hmm.